1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today I have three guests, Alex Huichili, George Herrera, and Philip Conliffe. They are the hosts of Afe Bunga Bunga, which bills itself as the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I strongly recommend the podcast as I think it's one of the most well-informed and thoughtful political podcasts out there, uh, even if I don't always agree with them. Indeed, while I frequently find myself disagreeing with one of their arguments or positions, I always appreciate their intellectually sound and and theoretically rigorous challenges to the things that I think uh, I think. And sometimes they change my mind. Today, we'll be talking about their co-authored book, The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, published by Zero Books in 2021. Gentlemen, welcome to New Books in History.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah
3: yeah thanks thanks when there's when there's three uh, three of us as, as guests we don't know in which order to speak too much it's like, too much it's like to the, three,
1: the three stooges going through the door at once you know?
3: yeah and then we all, <laughs> we all bang heads and try exactly the same thing again um ad nauseum yeah but uh, no really really happy to be here and yeah looking forward to the discussion
1: OK, so rather than having the listeners uh, listen to me read your CV and prattle on, um, why don't you each introduce yourself? So as a van, I hate the tyranny of the alphabet, even though you guys are all in the front part of the alphabet. So um, we'll go in reverse order. Um, Alex, you first. Uh, you're a researcher, writer and a translator joining us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, please tell us uh, where and what you studied and, and what you do now.
2: Yeah, so I mean, my academic background was in international relations. I studied international relations uh, at undergrad at the London School of Economics, uh, and then a postgrad at King's College, London, uh, and then uh, further another postgrad degree at uh, University of Kent, um, where uh, I was at the same time as Phil, but uh, certainly not studying with him. I would refuse to learn anything from Phil, uh, even if he had things to teach me, I would would refuse. Um, uh, So I I studied... I, my interest was mainly in uh, in consumerism and the spirit of capitalism, um, things which I guess uh, to a certain extent were parlayed into the into the book at least a bit, kind of in the in the introduction. Um, and now, as as you said, I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer, uh, translator, and researcher, and uh, I also do consultancy work on kind of research um, and uh, kind of language services, and that's that's what I do here in in, in Sao Paulo, where I've lived for the past. Nearly six years,
1: and where can we find some of your
2: writing? Uh, you can find my writing for in the Brazilian Report, in Jacobin, um, and now I'm going to forget everything else that I kind of have written for and write for. But uh, <laughs> you can find you can find right. me at alexhochuli.xyz. So yeah, yeah, or xyz. And I saw for, you for reviewed,
1: uh, yeah, Thank you. We appreciate that. Um, I saw you uh, review the White Lotus for Jacobin, and uh, I'm from Hawaii, so I was happy to oh, see right. a, a critique of that mm-hmm. in there. I, I've, I've yet to watch it, and I didn't want to read the review, but it's, it's on my list. But
2: uh, Yeah, yeah. No, anyway, there's um, maybe a couple of spoilers in there, so maybe leave that one for after you yeah. watch
1: Oh, I will. I, yeah, yeah. Um, George, uh, you have a doctorate in political science from Oxford. Uh, what is your area of expertise, and 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 what do you do with yourself?
3: Uh, yeah, so um doctorate in essentially kind of political theory uh, stuff. I was, um, I've written previously on the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, um, who's got a lot of, I think, quite influential, particularly in Anglophone cultural studies and maybe post-colonial theory as well. Um, and what do I do with myself now? Um, I'm no longer an academic, um, so that's, you know, often recovering academic, I think is the way people, people put it. But no, I, I um, yes, yeah, so I work in, I live and work in, in London, which is where I'm calling you from. It's, sorry, it's such a cliche that Brits always talk about the weather, but it's a really nice day today. So <laughs> you can see the sun the sun shining in uh, my window, which is very unusual. Um, and yeah, um, in terms of sort of what, what I've written recently, um, I've had a few pieces in Damage Magazine, which I, I think is a really interesting um, publication, and also, uh, at the full Brexit as well. Um, a few kind of analyses of Brexit, British politics and uh, and COVID as well.
1: Philip, you're the returning champion as you were previously on New Books in History to talk about Lenin Lives, a really fun counterfactual history of the 20th century. You also have a doctorate in international relations from King's College and currently teach at University of Kent. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your work. Uh, I'm delighted to be back on
4: um, on your podcast. Um, So as you mentioned, I teach at the University of Kent. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. And my work is mostly in um, liberal conflict management and its various inadvertent consequences and pathologies since the end of the Cold War, particularly humanitarian intervention, uh, responsibility to protect and United Nations peacekeeping. So that's my area of expertise. And it's um when I'm not doing podcast stuff, um, it's mostly what I work on in terms of research.
1: Great. So um the three of you created the Afe Boonga Boonga podcast in April 2017, I believe. Um what is the origin of the podcast? Um uh, the the origin story in comic book speak. Um uh what, what's your, you know, your mission statement for um Afe Boonga Bunga? Bunga? And also, I'm curious as to, to why a podcast? What did this genre uh, offer you?
2: Well, I guess like many great things, it began as a WhatsApp group. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, had, I had moved to Brazil at the beginning of 2016. And uh, anybody who knows Bra- recent Brazilian history uh, will know that it was a very turbulent time. It saw the institutional coup that year. And so I, we the three of us were talking. We'd been friends for for a long time. We'd known each other for maybe a decade by that point. Um, and, uh, and we, so we were just kind of chatting. I think it started off as a, like terribly named political musings, <laughs> WhatsApp group. Um, but, uh, but as things went on and of course that was the year that Brexit happened, suddenly it was like, wait, politics is back in some form. Um, at least things are very, getting much more disruptive than they used to be. And, you know, we were people who grew up, we we're kind of all older millennials and uh, Phil will dispute that and, and shout that he's a young Gen Xer. But, uh, you know, anyway, the point being is I growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, we were struck by obviously the fact that there was no politics, that everything was kind of wrapped up in kind of consensus and, um, and there would seem to be no movement whatsoever. <coughs> and so we were like, wow, okay, things are happening. And so early, uh, I guess early in 2017, one of us, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't me, but uh, either George or Phil, Uh, suggested that, uh, you know, how about we do a podcast, because obviously, there were lots of kind of new left wing podcasts springing up. And um, from the very start, we wanted it to be about sort of the end of the end of history, I think we probably already had that sort of strap line right from the start. Um, But the content of it and the kind of general tone was something that evolved over over the kind of first year or so trying to figure out exactly what we wanted to do with it. Um, But uh, but it was pretty clear that we were about kind of exploring the contours of the emerging world or maybe the 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 world that we knew which was falling falling away behind us
1: did you guys have any um broadcasting experience prior to that
2: um i had done some uh radio in university um and i had done kind of some program you know kind of uh you know managing the radio station stuff like that but uh but nothing nothing kind of more serious than that no yeah i I would
3: say we were we were more like a punk band we were like yeah we can we can learn as we go we can learn on stage our, our instruments um that's yeah i think that was more our vibe
2: that's a, well, that sounds it, like it's being self-aggrandizing but really it just george <laughs> means that we can't play our instruments so you know that's,
1: that's it well i really like that because i organized a panel for the um the next american historical association uh if if it meets in person um, with the really cheesy cliche title, is is podcasting the new punk rock for uh, for <laughs> for academic historians uh, who gone into podcasting and there's a number of us who do and we don't do anywhere near as well as these uh, professional uh, broadcasters who talk about history. Um, I don't need uh, my students to recommend the Dan Carlin hardcore history podcast to me. Mm. I will never listen and. Um, <laughs> To to his credit, he 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 corrects people and says he's not a historian. But anyway, we'll leave that one there. Um, so how how's the book an extension of the podcast?
3: Yeah, I mean, so Alex's origin story there, I think, was quite high highfalutin in some senses. I mean, I, the way I remember it is that we went to the pub. And we thought we could do a podcast, let's um, let's do it. Um, but no, I think one thing that, that really came out of, you know, over the years that we've done the podcast is that we wanted to continue the conversations that we'd had with guests, the particularly high quality of feedback from listeners and like the the prompts to make, to make us take it more seriously and to, I think, really put some thought and preparation into some of the topics and to try some new things out. I think that kind of led into... The idea that we could you know we could try and systematize some of these these things we didn't sort of see many books out there that were really responding to the the kind of the situation as it was developing post 2016 in the way that we would have wanted so yeah i think that's what the book essentially tries to put some of the frameworks that we'd been testing out in conversation and, and developed with with guests. I think it's really important to say some, some really, you know, some really top draw guests who made us think and gave us some, some great ideas that we that we uh, borrowed and cited, we didn't obviously steal in, in creating the book. Um, but yeah, I think that was our aspiration was to, to try and, you know, be provide some some frameworks that could help listeners or readers in this case, um, think about global politics, particularly post 2016.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about some of the the key terms and concepts that you utilize uh in the podcast but but in the book and really explain in the book. Um let's start with the most obvious. What what is the end of history? I mean obviously this comes from Francis Fukuyama's um well-known and and really <coughs> much, much derided uh essay and then book. Um but you offer what I think is a like a, a really persuasive defense of the end of history. Um concept. I, I'll, I'll, you know, come out and say that I'm one of those historians that just enjoyed dunking on Francis Fukuyama for years and actually have a lecture at the end of my 20th century world history class where I talk about um, competing narratives in the 90s with uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama versus, um, you know, the clash of civilizations versus uh, uh, what I think is the most persuasive is Chalmers Johnson's blowback uh, concept. But i um, reading reading the uh this chapter on the end of history I was it, it really challenged me um to reconsider for, uh Francis fukuyama and um anyway so give me this give me the sales pitch on the end of history and, and um tell me why I shouldn't be writing off Francis fukuyama I'm
4: delighted to hear the chapter that you found the chapter interesting and persuasive. I suppose, um, I mean, maybe one reason to write it off is the fact he's kind of written it off himself. (laughs) But despite (laughs) that, we do want to defend his original proposition. So, I mean, you know, in the last, I don't know, um, 20 years or so, he's hedged and kind of qualified, but I still think, and I think we all do that the original proposition is still, is still solid enough that it needs to be, Um, thought about and engaged with in a serious way. And so the idea of the end of history was what Francis Fukuyama, how he coined the post or how he described the post-Cold War period. So that with the end of the geopolitical standoff between the Soviet Union and the United States and the social systems that they represented of Soviet communism and liberal democracy, liberal capitalism, meant that there was, after that, after that, conflict ended there was no fundamental dispute over the basic principles and structures of social and political life <clears> and that as a result of that that changed the quality of all of politics and all of society so i mean frequently one of the ways in which the end of history was misinterpreted was that it was understood as claiming you know that uh, there'll be nothing new ever again um you know as if time stops or as if there'll be no new events um but that isn't that isn't what the claim was. The claim was that history, in the sense of um, the search for new political structures and new forms of um, of human government. Um, that contestation was over because it had been resolved in the favor of liberal democracy. And this was inspired by um, Fukuyama's idea, was inspired by um, Hegel's philosophy of history, the German philosopher Hegel, who made a similar analogous claim at the end of the Napoleonic Wars that with the defeat of of Napoleon and the universalization of the constitutional principles that undergirded the French Revolution, similarly that (coughs) the the um, peak of human development, political development had been reached, or at least that's one way in which the claim is understood. So Fukuyama kind of um, rehashed the idea at the end of the Cold War and we found it persuasive because it seemed to speak to the fact of the over of overarching political consensus as the character of the post-Cold War period, which Alex already mentioned as the kind of the times through which um, we grew up um, and that we kind of entered into political maturity, um, or at least adult maturity, if not political maturity. That it seemed a good way to characterize the kind of the centrist blandness, the lack of ideological dispute, and this uh, the fundamental stability of um, the existing institutions of of Western capitalism at the time.
1: Yeah, and what I found really interesting in that in your discussion was noting that with Hegel. Uh, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, that there's there's a there's a number of ends of history throughout uh, throughout history, and there will be future these of these ends of history moments where this consensus is established after these uh, prolonged conflicts. Um, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, so, um, your book and and the subtitle of the podcast is the end of the end of history. So, what? What, what does this mean um, to the end of the end of history?
4: Yes. Yeah, so the claim is um, that that period, that more or less 20, 30 year cycle, depending on how you want to date it, but from, say, the end of the Cold War through to the great financial crash of 2008, or perhaps to 2016 with the um, with Britain's vote to leave the European Union and the election of Donald Trump, as president of the U.S., so that post-Cold War period comes to an end, so that you have once again political contestation over fundamental constitutional questions um, and the offering up of meaningful political choices. So, when you had the breakthrough of certain populist parties in in the European Union um and as well as obviously bernie sanders breakthrough in 2016 when he challenged hillary clinton for um becoming can the presidential candidate for the democratic party it was very clear that they were meaningful or at least um genuine and genuinely different political choices in a way that you wouldn't have been able to say 10 or 5 years previously and so we characterize this as the end of the end of history which is to say the that post-Cold War period that Francis Fukuyama described had come to an end. But at the same time, it wasn't clear that it was being replaced by anything substantive. So it was being chiseled away and in some cases um, demolished with various populist wrecking balls, um, the end of history period. But there was nothing that was being erected in its place. And um, as we've seen, I think, over the last um, few years, all of the challenges to liberal centrism have been more or less beaten off they've um, beaten back and defeated in various ways and they failed to really institutionalize their gains or to leave any lasting imprint i think on the political order and so i think this vindicates what we've been talking about so it's the end of something but it doesn't feel like it's really the beginning of something new Um,
3: yeah just to just to just to jump in there i think to, to reinforce that point i think the the end of the end of history that double negative we hope that that captures something of the cultural moment that there is a sense of of um, a certain kind of period of politics ending but there isn't any there's not really a dominant project and I'm sure we'll come to talk about this but there's not really a dominant project to take its um, to take its kind of place so you're really you're left with this sense of cultural exhaustion and a whole range of uh, morbid symptoms, as as the cliche goes, um, that that kind of uh, erupt in this in this period because there's a um, the end of one thing without really the start of the next thing.
1: Gee, that sounds almost um, Uh
3: Yes, that was <laughs> that was the the illusion. Uh, yeah, I think it. I think it. Sadly, it's. I mean, it's actually true. That um, you know all these morbid symptoms arise in the interregnum, but it has now become a cliche. So I should I should not uh, should not use it. But it's, uh, it's true. I,
1: I I don't want to hear that because I just sent off a draft with that in print. So, um. <laughs>
3: <Okay>. <laughs> but it's true. It's true.
1: Um, and you know what? What I find uh, at, as a historian and not a um, not a political scientist, um, really useful about your discussion is that in contrast to when Fukuyama's writing at the start of this time period, which you know, seemed a little precocious, right. Um, to declare, you know, here's the new era where you are looking back after several decades and doing a post-mortem on this time period and, and, and playing the role of historian looking at this end of history moment and saying, well, Mm -hmm. you know, here are the key characteristics. And one of the things I loved about that chapter is that you, you lay out the, the political, but also link it to the economic patterns, cultural manifestations, um, and so forth. Um, could you say a few words on um, maybe sort of the, the culture of the end of history that you've observed that you note in that chapter?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, I guess the the, the term which would wrap it all up would be a certain form of presentism or to maybe cite another cliche, the, the quote that I think is Frederick Jameson's originally, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, is something that uh, remains true throughout the period and unfortunately is probably still with us. Um, you know, so it kind of, despite the fact that everything was fairly, especially like within the broader Western bubble, things were pretty staid and calm, um, and not really disruptive bar some terrorist attacks, uh, cultural manifestations were completely dominated by kind of catastrophic, uh, imaginings, right. You know, like the, the idea that nine 11 was imagined before it ever happened. Um, you know, it was there in Hollywood. Um, while at the same time, kind of what was supposedly outside of mainstream culture lost any kind of sense of connection to any um, alternative proposal or vision of the world or genuine counterculture. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, you could say that the counterculture became completely absorbed by uh, the mainstream, or and would it maybe in a more provocative way, you know, the mainstream fell apart, you know, like we're all Outsiders today, that that kind of sense of a moral majority or a silent majority that used to dominate, you know, especially American politics. But I think politics across the West um, from the 1950s onwards um, seems to have kind of collapsed in on itself. Um, So in that regard, um, you know, the it, it was only things like, you know, what's happening that's alternative and challenging. You know, you think of I think we cite this in the book, you know, like rage against the machine, but it almost seemed like a kind of desperate attempt to politicize things when there wasn't actually any politics going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think my sort of end of history moment was when, um, uh, and this this relates to that sense of uh, uh, counterculture, all you know, alternative culture being absorbed in the mainstream, is when Carnival Cruises ran an uh, an ad for um, cruises in the Caribbean using Iggy Pop's uh, "Lust for Life." Yeah, and yeah. Um, my brain pretty much exploded at that point. I'm happy Iggy's getting paid, but um, no, <laughs> no, this is this is not okay. Something is wrong with the world. Um,
2: yeah, and I so, mean we cited another yeah. example of that, but in, in reverse was like Adbusters magazine, which was always a yeah. kind of a pretty superficial rebellion in my view. You know, kind of challenging advertising, um, which then started selling its own unbranded sneakers, and you know that was I think the the, the death and L of the counterculture.
1: You know, who turned me on to Adbusters uh, back then was a friend of mine who worked in advertising. Um, oh, perfect. He <laughs> was a photographer, yeah. uh, you know, failed artist photographer who had a career in advertising. And he, and he turned me on to that. Um, so let's get into some of the other concepts, um, such as post-politics and anti-politics. Um, Alex, do you want to speak to that?
2: Yeah. So the thing about, I guess what the task was, is that if we're saying politics is back, Or at least the the ways in which politics had been um, kind of clamped down upon and being and wrapped up in this kind of uh, you know warm coating of consensus over the 90s and 2000s. Then how was politics back? You know, really putting politics itself into question, not talking about left versus right or socialism versus capitalism or or these other forms of polarization, but asking whether you know what is politics and what are the ways that it uh, can be furthered? What way can things be politicized? And what are the ways that things are kind of um, kept a lid on, to put it to put it that way, right? Um, and this is something that's of interest uh, to the left, to any kind of uh, progressive and radical movements, because the the whole idea of politicization is that you want to challenge the way that things currently are, and so politics is intimately tied to what the left is or or should be, right? That it's that left is politics, or or the left. Uh, is what kind of instantiates politics by by creating a challenge to the way things are and it's always conservatives who want to say no no let's not talk about these things let's just you know put them put them back in their uh put them back in their box right um so like to get into the kind of more uh political political sciencey sort of language of it um you know post politics is that form of management uh of managing a, a, a present and managing the kind of raised earth where uh, socialist movements, uh, alternative politics, and uh, working class organizations once were. So as they were de- defeated globally by the sort of neoliberal onslaught and, and at the end of the 1980s, and probably most, you know, most visibly with Reagan and, and Thatcher in, in the US and the UK, um, though the story is is the same kind of elsewhere. Um, that, you know, in, in this place of that, instead of having the kind of the, the ruling class attacking the working class, you had a, a form of management saying, let's not basically talk about politics. Everything was a matter of consensus. Uh, key political questions, I mean, the typical one being, you know, setting interest rates, for example, monetary policy that was made uh, an independent matter. Uh, it was not to be touched by elected governments, it was put in the hands of technocrats, uh, quangos were became in charge of re, uh, generating regulation, and so ever greater areas of what was politics and was subject to political contestation uh, became outside of put outside the realms of, of democracy, and that's basically post politics. It's a strategy of depoliticization led from the top, and so at the same time as you have this kind of withdrawal of, of the people from politics, the people become less and less interested, become more apathetic, and so on. Um, what really drives this is it comes from the top that think that politics doesn't matter anymore so you're going to vote but you're going to get and end up with the same thing anyway and that's basically post politics it's not just an acceptance that hey there's going to be a political conflict but we want to keep it moderate it's like no there is no conflict there is no real contradiction we just need to manage it and follow the best advice that the experts give us
1: and and as a historian i have to ask so so when when does post politics sort of become dominant in this end of history period
2: I mean, in the nineteen nineties, really, I would say, and I, I mean, I, you know, I was I grew up in Britain then, and and so for me, it was like the the Tony Blair government of New Labour was uh, the the real avatar of of that post political form of management because it was ruling over the ashes. You know, this was you know as uh, Thatcher famously said that her greatest success was Tony Blair was New Labour, um, which they <laughs> they kind of completely bought into the grounds of of Thatcherism. Uh, that's basically it right then, basically, you know, not, not even recognizing that there was an enemy anymore to be fought or that there were uh, divisions within society, right? We're all middle-class today, as he said. Yeah.
1: And then on this side of the Atlantic, Clinton's consensus building.
2: Yeah. And then he was there even earlier. Yeah.
1: Right. I think Michael Moore, uh, described, uh, Bill Clinton as the, his favorite Republican president. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. So, so wait, I mean, okay, you can to okay, so about that, anti-politics. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah so, anti-politics. So, so anti-politics then, and that's a, a far more ambiguous thing. I think post-politics is fairly well established as a term. Um, anti-politics is far more ambiguous. And a part of the thing that we wanted to do with this book is kind of put our stamp in it and try to nail down what it actually is. Because people sometimes talk about anti-politics as being what I've just described post-politics as, i.e. depoliticization. Um, when actually what we, what we have identified as kind of anti-political movements are generally movements from, from below, or that seem to come from below, which set themselves against the political class, the political establishment, the political system. But in being a rejection, uh, there's, it's just, has a purely negative quality to it. So it says that, you know, they don't represent us. Um, they don't have the right to rule, all of them up there. And it it extends beyond politicians, but also goes to, you know, maybe civil servants, the judiciary, uh, the media, the legal system and various appendages to to what I guess would be the establishment. Um, But it doesn't really militate in the name of an idea. It's not like socialist movements in the past, would say, you know, revolutionary movements, especially say, you know, they don't represent us, they're not fit to rule, but we're going to take charge and implement and try to create this new social order, you know, it's just purely a a rejection. So what makes it really ambiguous and really curious is that it seems to be politicizing. And, you know, one of the terms or one of the, I guess, manifestations of anti-politics would be what is often called populism, which seems to be politicizing because it says, hey, we don't all have the same interests. This idea of consensus is completely false. What the experts say is actually completely self-interested. And we're going to challenge that. You know, you up there, the political class, don't have the same interests as us, the the majority, the people, whatever. And so that's politicizing. That's important. That's the kind of first step to to politicizing and and, and creating you know division. Um, but at the same time, and what we warn against in the book and say that anti politics is this dangerous thing, is that it um, kind of takes away any possibility, any grounding for democratic legitimacy. Because if it says you know they they're not fit to rule but kind of no one else is uh, that representation maybe is even impossible, um, then who is going to rule? It creates this vacuum. And I mean, we talk a lot about uh, Brazil in the book because I think it's I mean we all agree I think that it presents a, a very perfect crystallization of a lot of these tendencies. You know, and, and if you look at Brazil's history from 2013 to today, it's pretty obvious how that works. You know, big anti-corruption protests would say you know, the the whole political class is corrupt. Okay, fair enough. There's loads of corruption. What are you going to do to change that? It says, no, just get rid of them all. They're all corrupt, right? That kind of uh, takes away any sort of uh, legitimacy for the political class and creates room for either for authoritarian kind of interlopers who, who base their appeal on kind of charismatic authority or di- uh, direct rule, dictatorship, and so on. Or even even worse, you get kind of new technocrats coming back in different guises. And and here maybe I'll foreshadow something we might talk about in a little bit. But, um, you know, someone who comes in who's, for example, a businessman who says, hey, I'm not from politics. I'm not part of that, like, in-club of whatever. I'm a guy who gets things done. I'm a dynamic, modernizing guy. I'm going to come in and not be corrupt because I'm not going to be corrupt because I'm rich. I don't know. Why am I going to steal? And try to present this kind of new face to politics. But that ends up just recapitulating the same form of uh, you know elite technocracy that people rebelled against in the first place and so there's this kind of uh, dangerous recursiveness to to anti-politics
1: right and, and in the Brazilian case um if, if I remember correctly um, when Dilma Rousseff was ousted in that uh, in that sort of legislative coup um w- wasn't there a high percentage of uh Brazilian parliamentarians who had corruption charges oh yeah pending pending yeah. that voted to remove her for corruption.
2: Yeah, third to a half of Congress had had charges against them, you know, right, already right, been which, which, he found guilty, so
1: which just makes that whole anti-corruption stance totally absurd. And 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 then to go further north in in the United States with Trumpism and the the drain the swamp mantra. Um I mean, it, what does that even mean? Right? I mean, it's it's this rallying against some sort of grievance, but no is it that anti-politics has nothing to put in its place.
2: That's basically it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's just anti, right? And I, I think one thing to note, I guess, is that a lot of the people who talk about anti-politics tend to be pretty uh, small c conservative, by which I mean, you know, liberal, but basically identify politics as the form of politics that existed uh After the Second World War in Western Europe and North America, and you know, it means following you know parliamentary rules and the and the whole process of of politics like that. And we don't want to say that that's the be all and end all of politics. And most people who say, "Hey, anti-politics is this dangerous thing," don't do that. Tend to be just saying we should you know kind of go back to the old forms of parliamentary uh, democracy and those and following those rules. And uh, it ends up being. you know, its own way, a kind of depoliticizing argument, right? And so we're not making a, a kind of a, like, let's go back to the status quo ante sort of argument here.
0: Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. <coughs> Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So um,
1: walk us through the the chapter on um, what you term the neoliberal order breakdown syndrome or... or- Nobs or knobs. Uh, what is knobs and what is its uh, various manifestations? And and also, I'm interested in, in what is the the demographic base that uh, suffers most from knobs? Uh, yeah, suffers most from this disorder. Um, George, do you want to speak to that?
3: Yeah. So, <clears throat> I think perhaps listeners can cast their their minds back to to uh, the ancient times of t- 2015, 2016. Um, this is so. I think a lot of what Alex was saying about the, you know, the culture of, of that post-political period is is really important here because essentially what happened in, you know, the Anglo-American context in 2016 is you had these two um, completely unexpected, almost um, on the part of the commentariat, inexplicable events: so Brexit and Trump. And I think the this idea of Nobs um, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome is an, is our attempt to diagnose essentially what happened to the liberal commentariat so you might think of um your your favorite uh broadsheet newspaper in, in the uk or or one of the big um american newspapers washington post new york times guardian times financial times all of these
1: um yeah, well, good we're, examples we're, 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 we're americans we don't read we watch tv so okay. r- well, rachel, rachel maddow maybe
3: rachel maddow exactly so it it was our attempt to sort of Try to, um, I guess, work out what exactly it was that characterised the response on the part of people who were supposedly experts in politics to to these events in in twenty sixteen in particular. But it actually has quite a long tail in uh, in in various ways. So essentially, what we um, the way we, we set this out was that that knobs is uh, the inability to accept, to explain, or to respond to political change. So some examples of characteristic symptoms in each of these uh, in each of these cases because we did want to we did want to kind of uh, present this as a as a uh, syndrome is so if if you can remember this kind of 2016 context the incredulity at or denial of political change and the refusal to accept responsibility for contra- for creating contemporary conditions so who um how did people respond when when Trump was was elected for example. And particularly, you might argue there's um, whatever the conditions that created uh, Trumpism, you know, look perhaps no further than the Obama administration and some of his supporters, some of his um, functionaries of various sorts. Um, And I think it was the the almost some of the, the the rhetoric which was poured out at that time was 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 quite was quite shocking, and we thought okay there's there's something at work here, there must be a political explanation and I'll kind of get to that in a, in a second, but in terms of the inability to explain political change, well, what were the explanations adduced um, for Trump or for um, Brexit, well, you have things like social media just cons everybody, you know, people are basically too stupid to understand what is true and what is false. You have Russia conspiracy theories, these things which um, came seemingly out of nowhere to occupy quite a central position in um, in kind of the the national conversation. And um, finally, this kind of inability to respond to political change. And again, this is on the part of what you might call the liberal establishment, or or you could see journalists, uh, academics, sorry to uh, any academics out there, but certainly several (laughs) of them were guilty of this. Um, But yeah, a real kind of nostalgia for the recent past in, uh, you know, looking back to the to the halcyon days of 2010, when all political questions were settled, um, or it's a kind of elite persecution complex seeing voters as somehow being unfair um to hold their representatives um to to account um and i think just to to kind of touch back on what alex was saying about the culture of the post-political era that's a really big part of the um part of the explanation because i think this idea um of there is no alternative or tina so this was very dominant amongst all of the people you might, you know, to generalize here, but everybody analyzing politics, all the commentators. And so when something which did happen, which didn't fit into that model of there is no alternative, Um, the responses were very revealing and I think it's also worth saying on Twitter you saw the short circuit essentially between people's knee-jerk reactions and they would then tweet things out and I'm sure your listeners have uh, some some favourite examples um, of of some of these kind of classic um, responses to to Trumpism or to or to Brexit Um, but this is essentially what we wanted to we wanted to to name is like what is this like what happened at that point and how did the political class and uh politics knowers as as the, the phrase goes um how did they respond to this kind of in hindsight it quite explicable um set of political uh, or political events
1: right and and just just one more time to, to break uh, do the three-way mm-hmm. break breakdown on on the neoliberal order breakdown syndrome it's it's uh inability yeah, inability
3: to To accept. So kind of like this, this isn't happening. Uh, Inability to explain. So these kind of quite um, uh, these models, which basically give voters no agency and inability to respond. So no political responses. Um, You saw a lot of people sort of go on listening tours of of rural America or, or outside of London and these journalists sort of come back and be like I can't believe people are talking about these things they're not bought into the political process um so yeah it was quite a I think we also wanted to capture that this was a very turbulent time and there was you know to name this like how do people respond to this this set assumptions kind of starting to break down
1: yeah, and you see it manifest in in these uh, the Talking Heads, the commentary, and yeah, in in the press and on the, uh, the cable news networks, and then in in more popular cultural forms. And there was the the HBO film about Brexit with um, uh, what's his name, the guy who's in everything, yeah, Sherlock, Sherlock Benedict, Holmes, Benedict, Cumberland. Benedict, actually, yes, yeah, it's, it's which, Dominic you know, Cummings, yeah, p- pointing the finger at uh, Cambridge Analytica and mm, so forth,
2: yeah. But the the crazy thing is that uh, you know it, it's kind of come back now, right? Because I think to a certain extent, COVID put a little bit of a dampener on that sort of you know the, that knobs sorts of uh, you know the, well that sort of whole set of set of symptoms. Because you know for for a while, like kind of the experts were back in charge, and so that that stuff was uh, you know all the all the kind of populist insurgencies that provoked that hysterical reaction were no longer. We're no longer there, but I think you can kind of see it coming back in in with that with the response to Afghanistan. Now Um, there's been a kind of resurgence of of knobs, right? So you've got like um, you've got all these people attacking Biden. I mean, basically, if some of the ideologies of the end of history were were like technocracy, as we've already discussed, uh, and humanitarianism as well, and especially humanitarian interventionism, then you can see a bunch of people complaining that you know. So I, I saw journalists attacking Biden for. Um, saying that you know he was prom- he was elected on a promise of competence and compassion but now he d- isn't demonstrating either of these things um and there's a whole series i mean yeah, one uh, kind of a leading uh, british journalist um uh, Janice Turner tweeted the other day, uh, you know, would would President Hillary Clinton have left the women of Afghanistan to illiteracy, sexual enslavement, and murder? Um, which is just which is just crazy. I mean, it's it's living in a, a, a kind of nostalgic fantasy land because, of course, Hillary Clinton did exactly that in in Libya. Um, yeah. So you know, it, it just it's replete with these examples of people kind of tearing their hair out at, at the fact that something that they took for granted and believed. Uh, would continue and wish that would continue effectively the forever wars and America's um, sense of its own authority in imposing liberal democracy around the world to, to no success, of course, um, you know, that, 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 would continue forever. And that the fact that, you know, even one of their own should kind of pull out the rug from underneath them is like, no, this can't, you know, this can't be happening. Um, and so, yeah, the, kind of in some way knobs knobs neoliberal order breakdown syndrome continues.
1: Philip, do you want to link um, or expand upon uh, this connection between neoliberal order breakdown syndrome and, and this current crisis in Afghanistan?
4: Yeah, just to reiterate that how strongly visible it is among all the commentators on Afghanistan is the, again, the whole process kind of repeating itself, the inability to account for change and the nostalgia for a very recent past. And so here we have kind of knobs playing out in a few urban enclaves, in this... um kind of war-torn, deeply violent and deeply poor country. And the imagine- you know the pres- presumption was that until a few days ago, everything was fine. Women's rights were improving. Everything was going in the right direction. You know, there was a few kind of problems in the rural kind of margins, but it was all heading in the right direction. And then suddenly everything is overturned and everyone is um, aghast, dismayed, incredu- incredulous, unable to explain this turn of events, except to call for more of the same more humanitarian bombing more um, funding for women's rights and ngos um and so on so i think it's a, it's an excellent recapitulation of the whole knobs that we had for a few years 2016 to 2018 or so it's you know kind of being replicated in miniature around the fall of kabul
1: and now in the in the book um you uh there's a Chapter on Berlusconi and on uh, on Italy and the and obviously the podcast title is a reference to Ber, Berlusconi and his uh, infamous bunga bunga parties. Um, so how how did um, Italy pave the way for this political moment? Um, do you want to unpack this for us, Alex?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what's fascinating about Italy is that it's plunged into the end of history. In a pretty abrupt manner, so you have what you know the the fall of the first republic uh, and, and the beginning of the second one at the beginning of the 90s. At the same time as uh, Italy is trying to make itself compatible to uh, you know to, to to fulfill the criteria of the Maastricht Treaty, um, which you know was kind of a lot of neoliberal restructuring, um, and that happened. And,
1: at- and Italy had a significant. Italy had a significant. Uh, Communist Party um, well, exactly. doing very well in elections,
2: right? And, and so, and so, what, you know, if if the backdrop to or or the kind of foundation for the end of history is the defeat of the working class, the defeat of of and the, the sort of end of communism as a as a kind of real possibility, then you know, Italy lives that in a in a very marked way because uh, the the Communist Party uh, kind of undoes itself and you know kind of folds itself into a kind of. Uh, a, a sort of new sort of left-wing vehicle and gradually and begins its gradual road to becoming a neoliberal centrist party on the model of the U S Democrats. At the same time, you have this mass anti-corruption investigation, uh, which completely delegitimizes the whole political class. Again, here's a kind of echo of, of anti-politics in a way of what I was talking about earlier. And, um, and that delegitimation of the, of the political class means that you have all the kind of parties that uh, held up the, the political structure of Uh, post-war Italy, especially the Christian Democrats, whose basic job in politics was just to remain in place and govern to keep the communists out. Suddenly they had lost their raison d'etre as well. And in that vacuum uh, enters this guy who was previously a real estate mogul, then uh, became a uh, mass media mogul. I mean, he became basically television and he brought kind of more American style consumerist television uh, to the Italian masses and then decides, well, hey, maybe I'll, I'll enter politics, and he enters and he enters parliament with um, a whole bunch of uh, MPs who are employees in his in his advertising firm, <laughs> and so and his whole party is not a democratic, organic political party um, where uh, you know where, where there's actual members and people vote on what their direction of the party might be. It's like a business party, as it's called. You know, it's completely um, detached from from. Uh, well, from the people, effectively, from the from the body of the citizenry, and he what he sells is an image, and this is something that I mentioned earlier when I said I was going to foreshadow something. I guess was that uh, this is a guy who says, "Hey, I'm a successful businessman, so I can be successful in politics. You don't need to listen to these old frumpy old." Types, Whether they're on the left with their talk of solidarity and whatever, or whether they're old kind of Christian Democrats who talk about tradition or, you know, charity or whatever kind of Catholic stuff they talk about, you know, I'm I, I'm going to present a shiny new uh, image of politics where you can go out and get what you want. Don't worry about the, you know, people telling you, you need to show solidarity or civic duty or charity or <laughs> whatever respect for tradition. You can just go out and, and go after what you want right so it's a very consumerist vision of politics it's a very personalized vision of politics where it's based on him as a person selling his um selling his image um and it's a very personal and it's um and and it's one which is kind of less and less kind of democratic and organic uh as as a as a vision and it, it's funny because he ends up capturing so many tendencies of the end of history that we'd see played out across Europe and North America and beyond that even over the, over the following decade. So one obviously is, uh, you know, a kind of media mogul being involved in politics, either, you know, you have it indirectly with Richard Murdoch, for example, Rupert Murdoch, um, but you have it also more directly with, for example, like Thaksin Shinawatra in, in Thailand, or, you know, you can think of other, other cases of, of media moguls being directly involved, or for that matter, of TV personality in the form of Trump. Um, but also, you have a, a guy who's basically surfing a wave of anti-corruption, of rejection of the old political class, while at the same time being totally corrupt himself. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's uh, kind of, has all sorts of charges thrown at him. He's guilty of kind of engaging kind of clientelistic relations. And he has a a relationship to the public, which is completely mediated by television. Um, So, you know, if you think about kind of completely uh, internet driven politicians today, uh, this was uh, the, the the TV politics of the nineties was just a precursor to that. Uh, And so, both at the level of substance uh, or its lack thereof, as well as its means of communication, as well as the kind of type of person that Berlusconi was, he just embodies so much of the politics and or the lack of politics of the end of history that he becomes a sort of template um, inadvertently or, or, or deliberately. And I mean, Trump is only the most obvious example. Um, but you can just think of some of the things that Berlusconi would throw out as claims which were just so Trumpian well before Trump ever did that. So, you know, he one example we put in the book is that he goes to the island of Lampedusa in, in the very, very south of Italy, um, which is near to uh, to kind of Tunisia and Libya, actually, um, where which was having a kind of migration crisis, right? It was receiving, receiving loads and loads of refugees. And of course, there's a the panic about uh, immigration. And he goes, no, no, it's fine. This is, I'm going to have resolve this. I've even bought a house here. Right, as if his own personal behavior as a, as this very rich man who's able to buy a house here was enough confirmation that uh, you know that things were fine. It's like, it would be like Trump saying, "Hey, no, you know, Florida's fine. I've I, I've got a place in Mar-a-Lago." You know, as if that were uh, the kind of a, a political argument. So it's this folding together and collapsing of public and private, um, and kind of the mediatization of everything, which uh, which Berlusconi does, and he does it very early, and does it uh, really to, to great success. One final element just about it, which I think is is uh, important to, to note, is that the left was unable to land a glove on him. The left became moralistic and would try to argue against him, not in terms of necessarily defending uh, workers' rights or, or standard of living. It was really about kind of civic responsibility and behaving in the correct, proper way. And here you can see echoes of uh, you know of kind of the left in the United States attacking Trump for not being presidential. And for a lot of people, that that, did, that didn't matter to them. They didn't really care about that stuff. Um, they didn't really speak to them. And so um, they became increasingly frustrated, called Berlusconi a fascist, um, which just is incorrect. And, uh, and and you know, as, as I said, didn't lay a glove on him. Um, so, you know, again, the whole template, the whole story of the 90s, 2000s, and even 2010s is told through the story of, of Berlusconi, even just in his early years, in the early 90s.
1: Yeah, and I, I found that really gratifying because... During the uh, the the first year of Trump, I was I was telling my friends, "No, we've seen this before. We saw this with yeah. Berlusconi." And so many of my uh, my colleagues were saying, "You know, this is unprecedented crisis." I'm like, I, I don't know. This I don't know that much about Italy, but just <laughs> this looks real similar, um, George.
3: Yeah, just just I think just to bring it obviously back to the the title of the podcast, I think one thing reflecting on. On Berlusconi specifically is that these these bunga bunga parties that he had ended up having a political um importance because he was showing people here's how to have a you know kind of a fun sexy life and you know he gave um Italian voters at that point special dispensation to to kind of um to to break the rules and as Alex said, the moralistic left was completely unable to kind of to uh respond to this um i think it would one way to put it would be his private life he made that some aspects of it public and that was very very successful and responding to that made the left seem that they didn't understand that this is you know that this kind of mode of politics was was going to become uh become dominant as it ended up um ended up doing
1: yeah and and again so much resonates with uh with Trump and just, you know, the, the response of, you know, orange man bad and, and, you know, pink, pink hats as, as the response, not, not a policy response, not, uh, you know, uh, something that can really attend to political needs, but this, again, this moralizing.
2: Well, I mean, the, the funny thing, actually, you mentioned the kind of pink pussy hats where, uh, you know, Berlusconi of course was, uh, you know, obviously strongly criticized for by feminists for being, uh, you know, macho, sexist, you know, crude, et cetera, which, which absolutely was. Um, but the, his largest constituency in society was housewives actually. Um, so that, that again, kind of proves that somehow the, the left weren't able to get kind of leverage there, weren't able to get their hooks and it didn't quite land.
1: Yeah. Well, this is all, um, very depressing. Um, (laughs) what, uh, what do you hold for our future? What, what's, what do you predict for our ideological future?
3: Well, I don't think this is uh, necessarily the point for, for too much um, optimism, but um, yeah. And so, obviously, in, in the chapter of the book, we go into a lot more um, detail on this. But just the, the broad outlines, I think the way that we would see it is the essentially the the right has um, or the centre right has. Uh, it's quite likely that we're going to see what we call state capitalism, so high state um, expenditure, perhaps a particular focus on addressing regional inequalities. Um, And I think it's probably worth saying that this, you know, I think COVID has accelerated this, this trend. So you see very, like high levels of expenditure and investment from from the state in from centre right perspective. And these were the people who, you know, a lot of the same people who would previously been talking about austerity, who would previously been talking about the effects of the global financial crisis, and the need for belt tightening. And all of that kind of ideological justification, I think is more or less out the window one kind of complicating factor and i think that this is you know um particularly uh true in in many states in in western europe and in, and in the us as well is that this state capitalism has to contend with uh, state apparatus that has been hollowed out over the past 30 years so maybe we could call it failed state capitalism so this idea that you can turn to the state to solve problems but you don't really have the uh, expertise the apparatus the the state capacity that you would have had previously, so it's a very contradictory um project, but you can see this in in biden to a certain extent in johnson to a certain extent in many many examples, but this is how we would would characterize i think perhaps the center right and so if that's the right, what's the um what's the left? well, i think the primary condition of the left is the the defeat of the organized working class. Um, and what what this sets as conditions for of possibility for a kind of centre left or a left response? What it, I mean, it, I think it, we we call it moral minoritarianism um, or progressive technocracy. So the idea is that all of these energies, perhaps of left populist movements, so uh, Bernie, Corbyn, um, Syriza, you know, Mélenchon in France, all of these um, there's loads of them. Um, where do they where do they go? Well. They were unsuccessful in producing a a kind of a majoritarian project so maybe the the avenue for those energies is to kind of short circuit to a certain extent that political process and instead make arguments for um, how you can lock in place through non-majoritarian means so citizens assemblies consultations of various sorts how you can lock in some kind of morally important projects and this can range from from you know a whole a whole a whole kind of variety of kind of anti-fascist projects maybe some green projects maybe some of these things and this you know we see this as the essentially the direction of travel how the conflict between these two uh positions gets um resolved is 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 i think up for debate but i think that's the that those are the main um kind of tr- direction of travel that and of of course kind of generalizing across the whole world is not super easy to do but i think that's what we're going to see and in some ways then the left will become the defenders of the status quo because they will be the ones mm-hmm. who will find it easier to talk about how to um kind of move in a progressive direction while the right is saying well we need these big state led responses but has no or center right has no real uh, kind of capacity to do it so it's a quite a contradictory picture, but I think there's there's those two camps starting to coalesce perhaps.
1: Yeah, I found that section in the book where you talk about the left becoming the defender of the status quo really quite provocative and thoughtful. Um
3: I think it was also it also is designed a little bit to to provoke. I think there is a need to to really assess the political and and this is partly, you know, since twenty sixteen I think what this is one of the the ideas we're trying to communicate in the book is that things have change some of these fixed assumptions that may have been in place over the post-political period, um, over the end of history period, you know, we have to think really critically about them. Do they still really hold? Do they still define what, what politics is? So yeah, hopefully hopefully provoke and, and uh, <laughs> cause thoughts and uh, annoy in a, in a good way.
2: <laughs> yeah, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess one thing that we hint at in the book, but I think it's become more, even more evident over the Past whatever, six months or however long it's been since we finished writing it, which is that um, the, the kind of the massive gulf in trust, I guess, and in, in trust in the political establishment has only grown. And I think to a certain extent that was uh, clamped down on or, or, or you know, the a lid was kept on that during the height of the pandemic. And now that's now kind of spiraling out with kind of opposition to, to lockdown and various other measures, but also kind of more uh, I guess, conspiratorial readings of what's happened. And as a consequence, I don't think the, the state capitalism, which I think George described very well of, of what might, what's kind of emerging as the new political center ground, uh, will be able to achieve any sort of uh, stability or genuine legitimacy. Um, And in fact, you know, I mean, it might, it'll try to do it maybe through like direct cash transfers to to circumvent the fact that there aren't kind of enough of a state apparatus to really manage things directly. You know, you don't have civil servants used to running state owned companies, Mm -hmm. for example, or massive uh, projects like the New Deal. And so they go like, well, let's just throw people money. And you can see a little bit of that already in, in the US. But uh, you know, I don't know how, how stable that will be, how much that will be able to buy people's trust because again, it's kind of so um, atomized as a form of welfare that it, it increases that feeling those feelings of, of fear, of, uh, of sense of repression and so on that lead to a lot of these kind of uh, more kind of conspiratorial readings of, of politics.
1: Well, um, you three have been really generous with your time, um, and but I need to wrap up. But I've got uh, just two more questions before um, we let you go. Uh, first, what are you working on now? Uh, Philip, you go first.
4: It's actually on the themes that we've just been talking about. So it's um, beginning some research on the idea of the failed state. Um, which has been the justification for so many of the wars that the West has waged over the last 20, 30 years. Um, The idea that you have these kind of small failing states in the third world that become bastions of terrorism, um, and need to be intervened in in order to um, contain the security threat that they pose. And then, in the wake of the pandemic and all the upheaval that we've seen, particularly with the um, protests around the world and in the US in the last um, over the last summer, as well as the failing public health systems that buckled under the strain of um, of COVID, it was became an unavoidable conclusion, and people started talking about state failure in the developed world, in Western states. Um, And not least when we saw pictures of um, Humvees being used on the streets of U.S. cities that were still painted in their desert tan that just rolled, been rolled out of Iraq and Afghanistan and put onto the streets of U.S. cities, that image really brought home the lack of authority and the lack of legitimacy of basic institutions in Western states and the. US as well and so it's um, the, this research is going to be looking at the um, how state failure has migrated I suppose from the periphery to the core and how useful it is to be to think with in terms of um, how our public institutions are responding to the strains and stresses of the current moment
1: mm-hmm. and uh, George,
3: Yeah, so just um, actually writing something at the moment back on, back on Gramsci, who's somebody who I haven't, you know, uh, obviously um, engaged with, with previously, but I think there is something today about the politics of of culture, and not to talk about culture wars, but to talk about how is it that uh, material politics has been, um, has been advanced, often in, in the name of of culture wars so i think that it could be a really uh, interesting interesting project and i'm finding gramsci you know to, to go back to, to something that you that you uh, have, have read previously and just realize how you know how your position has changed and how mm-hmm. and how your kind of um, engagement with it uh, ends up changing is has been really yeah really interesting so yeah watch this space for that project that okay. all
2: right and alex well, I'm continuing my my writing about Brazil, which uh, is a never-ending uh, circus, unfortunately, and uh, you know with Bolsonaro threatening uh, a coup or whatever. Um, so there's plenty in store there. But also, I'm continuing uh, my research, working on a new book project, uh, looking at, uh, I guess, what I've called social engluing or what uh, Obama called the epistemological crisis, which is you know effectively a growing disbelief in, in official narratives, um, and looking at that possibly in terms of, uh, Brazilianization, the Brazilianization of the world, which is something that I've written about. So kind of extending that sort of argument.
1: Right, right. I've, I've seen your Brazilianization of the world, uh, pieces and, and again, really provocative. Um, now finally, the, the new books tradition is to end with a book recommendation. So, uh, let's start with Alex. Uh, is there a book you can recommend?
2: I've been dreading this. This is the one question I can't answer. I, I draw a blank. I like feel like I've never read a book in my life because I can't remember the title of a single thing. Um, but okay, so one which I think influenced me a lot when I was uh, kind of researching as a kind of doing my master's was uh, Boltansky and Capello's The New Spirit of Capitalism, which is really about the development of um, I guess, neoliberal ideology of managerialism, of all these ideas of the way that kind of certain countercultural new left ideas around flexibility and so on actually then became used to to justify um, the new form of capitalism that emerged. Uh, and I think, and it's quite chunky, but it's the most uh, kind of empirical, um, as well as theoretically informed sort of analysis of, of this transformation. Um something that we've discussed elsewhere on the podcast of the californian ideology but i think it's it's kind of uh it's right there in the, in that book
1: okay um george are you going to recommend the prison diaries or prison journals
3: no oh. i mean okay. i mean selections from prison notebooks by <laughs> by um uh, by gramsci is is a is a great collection i mean and, and i agree with alex it's, it's difficult it's like recommend your favorite album but i <laughs> i if it's okay i will say uh one thing that i'm i'm reading at the moment, which is Reconstructing Public Housing by uh, Matthew Thompson, who's a, a British academic. Um, and I think this is a really interesting history of how you move from this idea of public housing to social housing in the mm-hmm. British context and how these struggles over housing, which we have some um, echoes today, uh, how they developed and just, a and then a classic, so Peter Mayer's, um ruling the void. I think this mm-hmm. analysis of mm-hmm. the material changes in in politics across across Western Europe and more widely, and how this led led to a, a void of representation that we're still that still determines a lot of politics today. So sorry, that was that was two. Uh, I apologize.
1: That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and finally, Philip.
4: Yeah, I for a change I don't actually have difficulty recommending one. It would be um, Political Freud: A History by Eli Zaretsky. Um, a cultural historian and historian of psychoanalysis and it's um a book about the different ways in which political freudianism has unfolded over the course of the 20th century in different cycles and it's just a it's a remarkable book um astonishing and in fact we had an episode of our of our podcast on it uh, just recently um, but i'd recommend i'd recommend the book to um to all your listeners it's remarkable
1: okay thank you So, Alex, George, and Philip, um, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. So we answered uh, sequentially there rather than doing (laughs) it all at the same time, (laughs) trying to walk through the door at the same time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, this has been a conversation with the hosts of Afe Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end end of history. um, Excuse me, at the end of the end of history. Alex Wachili, George Herrera, and Philip Cunliffe have published The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, with zero books in 2021. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, at channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.